Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Coming up later in the show, we'll hear from the Forbes Library's Dylan Gaffney, who's hosting a photographic exhibit and conversation looking at the history of Northampton between 1887 and 1987. We'll learn about some of the stories that made that period of history special. And in honor of National Poetry Month, East Hampton's outgoing poet laureate, Jason Montgomery. We'll hear some poetry and talk about his art, 50 Arrow Gallery, and Attack Bear Press. But first... To boldly go where no man has gone before. Intercollegiate astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, here at your kitchen table in Amherst. There is a rogue black hole out there? <laughs> okay, so first of all, no. Okay, good. I can so, breathe a little bit easier and enjoy this cup of coffee. But this is a really cool story. Uh, and uh, what I want to highlight is, I'm, I know everybody is off to their new toy. Everybody's talking about James Webb Space Telescope and da-di-da-di-da. Don't forget Hubble. It's still up there working. It's still up there working, and, um, and and you can find some really cool stuff. And remember that James Webb Space Telescope is also complementary to Hubble, meaning to say that it works in different wavelengths, different light. So this was actually a really cool uh, story where astronomers from Yale, actually, uh, led by um, astronomers from Yale, they actually found a runaway supermassive black hole. How do you find a black hole when light can't escape a black hole? How do you see it? And where is it running away to? <laughs> and why don't I need to worry about it running away here? We wouldn't even see it coming. Okay, so all of these things are r really interesting. So let's go step by step. First of all, you don't see the black hole directly, but you see black hole indirectly. So stuff that is falling around it. Usually, that's what we know about it. And so, uh, as for example, you remember the image of the event horizon of the black hole? That was not the black hole itself, but the light that was right before it goes into the black hole. You can, astronomers had imaged it. That's it Wookie, is. it's trash day. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of like ring around the black hole. That's right. And also you can, and that's how astronomers have detected black holes in general, and that is through an accretion disk, meaning to say that you have material that is falling into the black hole, but before it falls into a black hole, it gets heated up so much that actually it radiates. In fact, it radiates very highly. You can actually, that's how we detect. And some of the brightest objects, the centers of galaxies, those have supermassive black holes. And we see these bright centers because they have these accretion disks, meaning to say material swirling around this black hole. And before it goes in, the friction makes it really, really hot. And that's what we see. So we know black holes exist because we have seen these accretion disks. We know black holes exist because we have seen these light photon photons right around outside the black hole. So that is not the issue. And there we also know there are multi different types of black holes because there are black holes the size of our sun that are sort of like, you know, end stages of these uh, big stars. And then we have these supermassive black holes that reside at the centers of galaxies, including, for example, at the center of our galaxy, uh, which is about four million times the mass of our sun. Uh, but there are big ones, and actually recently, which we are not talking today, but recently astronomers also detected one that is about 30 billion times the mass of our sun. Wow. But that's not a runaway black hole. This is a cool story because this is very unusual. You don't find runaway black holes because it's very hard to detect them. <laughs> So astronomers found a uh, sort of like, you know, a region of the sky, a, re a galaxy that they were looking at, and they found a big streak. Now, initially, as you would think, they think that, hey, maybe uh, there's a problem with the detector. 
Maybe there are something called cosmic rays. These are high energy particles that actually are roaming around. And if you are taking astronomical images, deep exposures, you're often bombarded by those. And so you have to correct for them. Like, you know, you, you occasionally see that and you correct that streak. But in this case, that streak was not a cosmic ray, but an actual sort of like line of stars that are being formed. And they're away from the galaxy. So there is a galaxy. And then there is this long line that you can actually see uh, that is in there. And that contrail, I mean, that's what astronomers also define a it. A chemtrail? Okay, kind of like, you know. But except that this is a contrail of newborn stars. Wow. And that's 200,000 light years long. So roughly twice the diameter sort of like you know, of the Milky Way. So you have a galaxy and then you have this line of these newborn stars. The question was, how did this line of stars got formed? And this is puzzling because normally you don't see that. So this is where, where I was talking about that sometimes you find these unusual things and for that you require unusual explanations. And so what astronomers think is that there was a, or there is a supermassive black hole. They estimate uh, that it's about 20 million times the mass of our sun, so much bigger than the, center, the supermassive black hole in the center of the Milky Way. And that got ejected from the center of its galaxy. And as it is going through intergalactic space, it is compressing gas. And when it compresses gas, it forms stars. Basically, it forms stars in its wake. You can think about that. So it's that. not eating things. People think black holes eat things. But what this black hole is doing is actually building things. It, in fact, in this particular case, it doesn't have time. That's what astronomers think because they think that it is actually moving really fast. It, uh, their estimate is about 4 million miles per hour. That's how fast it's going. Like, you know, so it, it would take about 14 minutes uh, for this black hole to go from Earth to the moon. Okay, that's how fast it is going, which is, I mean, everything is fast on, on the global scale, but it is moving fast. On galactic scale, even. And it doesn't have time to actually absorb material, but rather because of its high speed, it compresses gas and stars form from compression of gas. And so it is leaving behind these new stars. And there are a lot of them because you can see that even though this whole system is actually a few billion light years away, and you can still see the galaxy and this uh, trail of stars. The NASA article that you sent me that talked about the Hubble telescope mentioned Pac-Man, and it does feel like that. Rather than gobbling up stars ahead of it, like a cosmic Pac-Man, the speedy black hole is plowing into gas in front of it to trigger new star formation along a narrow corridor. It's sort of like reverse Pac-Man. So you need another rogue black hole to come behind this black hole and eat those stars that this Pac-Man creating black hole has created. Well, that would be cool. But there is more to that story. And there is, or sort of like there are, binary or two black holes on the other side of the galaxy because that is related to how this was formed. Because you asked this question, well, how do you get a runaway black hole? Because yeah, what kicked it out of its galaxy? You would expect black, supermassive black holes. These type of black holes are in almost all big galaxies. 
So that's not a surprise that there is a supermassive black hole at the center of a galaxy. But what is surprise, surprising here is that it's running away from it. So the next question is, why is it doing that? It's afraid. <laughs> exactly. So what astronomers think, and this is where they look for various explanations. Remember, they're not seeing the black hole itself. What they are seeing is this trail of newborn stars that is sort of like pointing away or in one direction from the galaxy and they can figure out sort of like where there are newer stars versus older stars and there is a particular direction in there. So what they think is that this black hole got ejected because there are two other supermassive black holes at the center of this galaxy. So the gravity between these two other black holes just shot this other runaway black hole out of the galaxy to go and create its own trail of stars. Right. So, so just here we are. This is just so cool. Absolutely. Like, you know, supermassive black holes reside in centers of galaxies. So they have, we expect, or astronomers think, that there were two galaxies that collided with each other. Galaxy collisions happen. Milky Way and Andromeda galaxy is also going to collide, and they both have supermassive black holes at their own center. Is that going to happen soon? No, but in a few billion years, so don't <laughs> worry about it today. And so here, 50 million years ago, astronomers estimate that two galaxies collided. They both had supermassive black hole. So you formed a binary supermassive black hole at the center of this new merged galaxy. All well and good. Two black holes can go around in orbit. We know that they sometimes collide together and that's how we have detected, for example, gravitational waves from these collisions. But a third galaxy with a supermassive black hole also collided there. And now three is a crowd. Yeah. Because the orbits, when you have three objects, they can be chaotic and they can be unpredictable. And that can lead to the ejection of one or both of these, or all three of those black holes. And astronomers think that this is what happened. We don't know which one of those, the new one that got ejected, so the new one came in, or it replaced the ones that were already there and it ejected one. And so it basically, it got their momentum when they were orbiting and it got ejected out. And that's what we are seeing. And as it got ejected out at very high speeds, in fact, it has astronomers estimate that it has been 39 million years that it has been going out on its spree. <laughs> I would say star formation spree. <laughs> it's sowing its wild oats. <laughs> exactly. But, and here is what I love about it. They also think that there is, there is a faint detection of another streak on the other side of the galaxy. And they think it's because the other two black holes, and that is related to conservation of angular momentum as well, they think actually they got kicked out on the opposite side. And those are also creating some stars. So here is a case, uh, again, that we think there are a couple of these runaway black holes that are actually pretty nice because they are forming new stars. And so you can imagine that you can have those stars, you can have planets around them, maybe some of them may have life, and they may trace one day, hey, how was our solar system formed? And they may figure it out one time that, you know what? Children, gather around. Let me tell you, there was a black hole in that galaxy that we see. It's quite far away because we are not part of it. But there was a black hole that ran away and created our star and their planets. And then we evolved. And now we worship this supermassive black hole. <laughs> this is an interesting object. And uh, it's going to be a target for James Webb Space Telescope nice. as well. But 
give Hubble some love. I think Hubble is still doing amazing stuff. <laughs> Later in the show, in honor of National Poetry Month, East Hampton's outgoing poet laureate Jason Montgomery will hear some poetry, talk about his art and other things like his Attack Bear Press. Up next, Forbes Library's Dylan Gaffney will take a look at 100 years of Northampton history, focusing on the years 1887 to 1987. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Dylan Gaffney is the senior library assistant at the Forbes Library. Born and raised in Northampton, Dylan has been using his community connections and his extensive local history knowledge to strengthen the library's role in the community. He was appointed by the former mayor to the Northampton Historical Commission and has collaborated with Northampton Community Television, the Northampton Arts Council, the David Ruggles Center, and Historic Northampton to bridge the needs and resources of the community with those of the library. This Wednesday is the Friends of Forbes annual meeting. The Friends of Forbes, a nonprofit who fundraises to help enrich the library, and they're offering financial support for programs and materials. Directly following the meeting, Dylan Gaffney from Forbes Library Local History and Special Collections will present photographs from downtown Northampton over a hundred year span of time from 1887 to 1987, drawn from the library's vast image collection. This collection is now more accessible than ever through the library's new digital portal. Dylan Gaffney from the Forbes, welcome to the Fabulous 413. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> this sounds like uh, an exciting way to have what might be an otherwise boring annual meeting <laughs> where you're talking <laughs> like a board meeting and fundraising and things like that. But then a presentation, a photographic presentation, which will be lost to our radio listeners, unfortunately, uh, of, from the collection of the Forbes Library, 1887 to 1987. Why, are, why is that the 100 years you've decided to focus on for this exhibit? Uh, well, I chose 1887 as a starting point, uh, partially because that era of Northampton's history is, is really well reflected in our photo collection, um, but also as a period around which a lot of the architecture of downtown was constructed. There had been a series of devastating fires in the 1870s. Uh, the town had just incorporated into a city. The new courthouse had just been constructed. Sidewalks and sewerage were being improved. Railroads were booming. The mills are bustling with activity. Immigration's increasing. So it just starts to feel a little bit like the downtown we can visually recognize today was starting to take shape at that point. So then why 1987? Why just because you wanted it to be a clean 100 years or... Somewhat. Uh, yeah, I'm also of the age that I was a late teen in 1987, <laughs> so it's significant to me. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, in, in 1987, the art scene was taking off and music and theater and art and independent journalism were everywhere. You could go out to see new wave and punk and folk and jazz bands all over the place. No theater was here. I remember seeing Willem Dafoe walking down Main Street <laughs> the summer he was here. Spalding Gray was performing his act on the top floor of Thorns. You know, people were getting all heated about Hamp versus NoHo. <laughs> Started that early, huh? <laughs> Yeah, oh, even earlier. Gentrification versus war was written on the back of Thorns. It, it, it was just a... You know, again, a lot of themes we, we still hear today. <laughs> well, it's cool, like, your local events, because I've seen your previous talk on the music history of Northampton, which is really fascinating. And check out the Bay State Project if you if you haven't yet, because they're doing really cool stuff about the, the music scene. But what are some big local events in this time period that people may not know about? 
Well, there is there's extensive photographic documentation of Notification Day, which is when when Coolidge officially became president, and they they did downtown up with bunting, the, the likes of which we will never see again. It was just every building covered with flags. Um, so that's that's really well documented. But I I try to show. Uh, as much as I can, working class folks, interiors of stores, um, just everyday life. Uh, there are some really remarkable pictures of the first World War One draftees going off um, and leaving at Union Station and just the masses of crowds getting onto the trains with a beautiful uh, billboards for Cordicelli silk, silk mills in the background uh, that are pretty remarkable. Did the Union Station building that is where the restaurant is right now, is that where people were using as a train station or was there something more glorious and glamorous in that era? No, that that was built right around this era, actually. There was an, there was an even more glorious and, and glamorous uh, train station at street level um, that William Fenno Pratt built, but so many people were being hit by trains oh at, at Bridge Street Crossing, <laughs> so they had to fix it. Wow. And eventually, they had this huge back and forth with the railroad companies over who was going to pay it. The railroad companies wanted them to elevate the road over the trains, um, so they actually built scaffolding on the building close to near where Fitzwillies is today uh, to show the height that it would have had to have been. And it just seemed completely unrealistic. Um, so eventually they got uh, the railroad companies to defer and built uh, the system with the truck eating bridge we know and love. So wait a minute. The truck eating bridge was created to keep people from getting killed by the trains. Is that essentially it? That is essentially so it. So we've decided yes. to sacrifice trucks. For humans. I can, yeah. I can I agree with that. I think I would, I would totally take that trade. <laughs> the tithe is paid regularly whether they want it to be or not. Very regularly. We're speaking with right. Dylan Gaffney, who's the senior library assistant at the Forbes Library. The Friends of the Forbes annual meeting is happening this Wednesday. You can stream it live on YouTube. And then after the business end of the meeting, the party in the back with the uh, photos from the Forbes Library collection. Now, you mentioned downtown Northampton filled with bunting on notification day at the election of President Coolidge. And I'm assuming most people probably know why uh, that was such an important day for downtown Northampton, because Coolidge was the mayor of Northampton and then went on to become the governor. Um, tell what, How much of this photography has to do with Coolidge's life in Northampton and his time as mayor, which was around 1909, right? Yeah, uh, not a lot of what I'm showing. Uh, there is a, a wealth of materials online in our new uh, digital database that we just launched at archives.forbeslibrary.org um, that really documents Coolidge's time here well. Um, but I don't know, maybe I'm neglecting <laughs> Cal now that I think about it. But <laughs> maybe we've heard enough about drop him Cal. becoming president on the radio. So. <laughs> Yeah, he's called Silent Cal, so we can't even talk about him on the radio. Right, it's right. just too quiet. R.I.P. to that bar, too. Yes. <laughs> Does that make an appearance in the photographs? <laughs> Silent Cal? I feel like that might be a little too late, but I might be wrong. I, ha I have 
photographs of silent cows in the collection here as part of our live music archive as right. part of the Western Mass. Yeah, music I think archive. on this next and, part of the break, we're going to have to talk a little bit about the live music stuff too, because that is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about some more of the photographs that you'll be featuring as part of this annual meeting that you really are, uh, are excited to show people. Um, I'm always excited to show people uh, anything that, that really resonates with what is there today. Uh, so just folks of pedestrian or shots of pedestrians walking down the street in, you know, 1890s dress. So obviously there's differences. Um, but when you see the angle, you know exactly where they are mm-hmm. or shots of workers standing out in front of the their place of employment or streetcars, which people just go crazy for streetcars, any picture of, of the trolleys. What do you know really about the streetcar system that Northampton had? And when, when did that uh, end? As a, as a librarian, I have to get comfortable not knowing things. Yes, you can just say I don't <laughs> know. them up. There's so many things I don't know. But the, I, <laughs> you I, have I'm, pictures of I when they get, were there. I could guess like the, the 1930s or something. I know the tracks were there long after the... The trolleys stopped and there were horse-drawn trolleys first and then they electrified them and you know and they were very extensive they ran down to Bay State and Florence and connected to networks all over Western Mass. So which other networks did Amherst have a connected uh, trolley system did it have to go through Hadley? I believe so I, I feel like I just read about one that went all the way up to Montague and Turner's. Wow yeah geez I yeah. wish they had that the whole time I was commuting early in the morning to uh, Northampton from Turner. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're speaking with Dylan Gaffney, who's the senior library assistant at the Forbes Library. And the Friends of the Forbes annual meeting is this Wednesday. The Friends of the Forbes are a fundraising arm to help offer financial support for programs and materials that the incredible Forbes Library has to offer. I was going through these new digital archives that you mentioned at archives.forbeslibrary and uh, looking at some of the pictures uh, that are there. I don't know if they're part of your presentation or not, but I did see a lot of more contemporary 20th century artists featured in the collection, including Leonard Baskin and even Eric Carle, who had a studio on on Main Street in Northampton. How much does the art scene of uh, factor into your presentation looking at the years 1887 to 1987? Um, I'm really concentrating on photos for this one. I always like to do my photo shows and be, just kind of be the man behind the curtain and disappear <laughs> a little bit. But um, but we have been doing a lot of work at diversifying our art collection here. So we've been purchasing a lot more with the trustees' help. We've been purchasing a lot more art. Um, Art was part of the original founding of Forbes Library's ideas. We were always going to have an art collection. We we're always going to have special collections and archives. A lot of libraries don't start out with that as a goal. Um, so as a result, we've tried to cultivate it throughout and have a, have a pretty amazing collection. Because what's interesting about the governance of the Forbes Library is it's, well, first of all, it's not only a presidential library. The Calvin Coolidge Presidential Library officially is inside the Forbes, right? Yes. And then yes, we it, it's sort of a pseudo-governmental organization because of the way that the trust was formed, that you must vote. The city of Northampton votes for trustees of the Forbes Library. Is that still true? That is still true. And uh, there have been recent court cases to uh, straighten out some of the, <laughs> the understanding of that with the city. <laughs> um, but we're all getting along great now. <laughs> Because the city was trying to pull resources from the Forbes instead of giving them the resources that the city is supposed to give to the Forbes? Is that what the nature of the lawsuit was essentially? 
I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be the trustees or the city's voice on, on this one. But <laughs> essentially, the city provides us money, which helps with the upkeep of the building and the payment of the staff. And, you know, there's just differences of, of opinion on other issues. I feel that I should just apologize for laughing at the various misfortunes that have come up in this, like people getting hit by trains yes, and like, we've been laughing lawsuits regarding like actual governance of organizations and like I, I'm I'm sorry. I'll never look at the truck no. eating bridge the same way again though. I, know, I was right? like, wow, you're really bad for trucks, but you're really good for pedestrians truck eating bridge. I'm really happy because I wanted laughs. You got them, Dylan. When I don't get them, I'm really like, I've done something wrong. <laughs> People don't understand me. Well, coming up, we'll talk a little bit more with Dylan Gaffney, who's the senior library assistant at the Forbes Library. Their annual Friends of the Forbes meeting is this Wednesday, and Dylan will be showing some photographs after the business part of the meeting, chronicling the years 1887 to 1987. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. And we're speaking with Dylan Gaffney, who's the senior library assistant at the Forbes Library, born and raised in Northampton and working to tell the story of the history of Northampton. And as we were talking off the air, we will never uh, see the truck eating bridge the same way again. It was literally the moral philosophy uh, train problem writ large, where it's uh, people eating train versus truck eating bridge and Northampton and the train companies went with with truck eating bridge. You can replace trucks. Yeah. Tell us some more about <laughs> some of the um, photographs that you're particularly excited in this exhibit before we start talking and picking your brain about your music chronicling project, Dylan. Or perhaps to connect it, are there pictures of Jenny Lind? <laughs> there are no pictures of Jenny Lind. Who is uh, Jenny Lind for those who might not know? Programs. She's a little <laughs> late, but I figured I'd ask. <laughs> I think she died in 1887. Is that right? She might have. I maybe think that that's why, that's why I, I thought maybe you picked that date, but yeah. <laughs> so who was Jenny Lind for those who don't know? Jenny Lind was a celebrity um, performer, singer. Uh, she came to Northampton, it was the late 1840s, 1850, uh, performed two shows, was said to have coined the term Paradise of America in describing Northampton. The second show, she came here on her honeymoon, um, so she liked it enough to return and sold performed sold out shows at the at town hall and uh i forgot the other location we'll have to have dr steve waxman professor of music and american studies That's at smith right. college on to talk about that he's a big uh fan and chronicling the history of jenny lind and her importance to the city uh, what about other more contemporary artists in that hundred year period there have been some big names who've played in and around northampton the bands that you grew up uh loving to go see when you were a teenager in at the end of the period you're chronicling in the late 80s. Yeah, and, you know, as you mentioned before, we, we do a lot of work here to try to, uh, we, specifically we've been collecting on the Bay State Hotel's music history, but that's part of a larger project to try to create a Western Mass music archive of recordings and photos and flyers and um, video where it is. Uh, to capture a really exciting time in Western mass music, which really starts for our project in the late 60s and goes up till today. Um, so, you know, from sneaking into Sheehan's, 
far before I was able to be of legal drinking age, uh, just going to see, I grew up with my brother in the Western Mass hardcore scene. Uh, my dad took us to see Stop Making Sense when I was 13. Where did you um, see it? At the Calvin? The, li- the live oh, tour. Not, oh, the not tour, the, not the movie. In Springfield <laughs> yeah, at the Civic it. Center. Yeah, nice. that was poorly set up. Um, <laughs> no, it wasn't. I'm just... <laughs> I met I met Run DMC at Main Street Records. Wow. I saw the Ramones walking down Main Street one day. It was just a, you know, those in the 80s in Northampton, there was a real energy going on in so many little clubs, Little Oasis, Sheehan's, you know, they were just popping up or pop-up events um, like Extremos, uh, which was a floating nightclub um, that would have events at different places and held the very first event at the Bay State Hotel. Hmm. Um, so we're trying to collect on all of that. That's a really, really cool thing that is, I think is really important to maintaining a scene, understanding your history. So Absolutely. The other thing I'm interested, Dylan Gaffney, is the architecture. What would we see and recognize right now in downtown Northampton that we would have seen and recognized at the period that you're starting to chronicle in 1887, particular buildings or angles that basically look the same? Virtually everything. Really? (laughs) I mean, the late 1880s and some early 1890s, so many of those buildings are built, um, you know, the what I still call the Woolworths building, but it's the CBS building, um, was not there. That was a, another building was demolished and it was replaced with that. So there's a few outliers, but so much of the the funny um, uneven shape of downtown, where every building is a slightly different height as mm-hmm. you go down the hill, um, <laughs> so much of that distinctive look is there. And even when buildings were replaced. They're very similar to what was there before. Um, so, Except I think for a couple feel... of sore thumbs on Main Street that still seem to, to stick out. <laughs> right. I think of some bank buildings and things. <laughs> they might not quite yes. fit into the overall uh, idea of the, the, yes, the architecture no, and downtown. We, and we really miss the Draper, which, you know, we have one third of it, but that really dominated that whole side of the street across from what is now Thorns Market. Um, and was this huge grand building. I do have some really, a nice picture of the Draper on notification day, as well as some interior shots, at least one of which I'll be showing at the event. What was the Draper, apart from the last name of the guy from Mad Men? (laughs) So the Draper was sort of the big grand hotel downtown um, prior to Hotel Northampton being built. There was some overlap. There had originally been a building called the Mansion House, which sat on the St. Mary's lawn looking over what was then the canal, but became State Street. Um, and that was the place where big visitors would come and the, you know, the, the men who ran Northampton at the time would get together and drink and make decisions there. Um, when that, the need for it outgrew the building, they created a second and called it the Mansion House for a little while. Um, huge hotel building um, across from what is now Thorns. And one third of it still stands sort of right near the Haymarket. You can see one of the doorways says this was the Draper Hotel and has an image of it, but two thirds of the building was taken down. You can see lots more photos of this 100 year history Wednesday at the Friends of Forbes annual meeting. It is offered virtually. There will be a live stream on YouTube and you can hear from Dylan Gaffney as he shows you some of these 
wonderful photographs from the Forbes Libraries collection. Thank you so much, Dylan. Uh, again, once again, this I love history. I love learning about the history of places we love, and I will uh, never look at downtown Northampton the exact same way again, especially <laughs> because of that truck-eating bridge. Truck tithes. <laughs> thank, yeah, thank, th- thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. It's our pleasure. From history to poetry. There we go. Jason R. Montgomery is a Chicano of indigenous Californian Mexican descent. He's a writer, a painter, a community artist, an engagement artist from El Centro, California. In 2016, along with poet Alexandra Woolner and illustrator Jen Wagner, he founded Attack Bear Press in East Hampton. Jason's work engages the cross-section of Chicano indigenous identity, cultural hybridization, post-colonial reconstruction, and political agency. His work bridges several aesthetics, aesthetics from the early Cubist collage music movement to Russian abstract of the 1920s, tying them with living and historical trans-border indigenous and Chicano art traditions to explore the post-colonial narrative. We will explain what all of this means. Yeah, or at least a lot of it. Along with his partner, <laughs> Alex Wilner, Jason was named East Hampton's Poet Laureate in 2021 and he used that platform along with his press and connected art space, 50 Arrow Gallery, to push how our community makes and engages with poetry, art, and the world around us. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for coming on. Hauka, hola, hello. Um, I also will not be explaining any uh, <laughs> off of my bio. Just, just we want to know about early Cubist collage moving from Russian abstract to the 1920s. Uh, okay, I can actually explain that. That is more along my visual um, side of things. Uh, early Cubist collage was a lot of surrealist collage. Nice. Um, and I, I use a lot of collage in my visual artwork. Um, the Russian abstract is, is just as it sounds. They used a lot of bold and bright colors, a lot of uh, materials that aren't traditionally utilized um, in in paints. Uh, one of my favorite Russian um, abstract, uh, he works coffee into his paint to, to give almost a dirt-like feel, and I've totally stolen that on numerous <laughs> occasions. So. With actual coffee? Yeah, it's a, like coffee grounds. Wow. Um, yeah, so. We make so cool. many coffee grounds here at NEPM. Uh, Between think? Jessica Lee and I, we've got plenty to give you. Yeah, it's alarming how much I drink coffee now that I'm here. <laughs> One of the cool things that you've done for like this past month is the text poem project. Please talk to us about it because I think it's wonderful. Yeah, actually the text poem project is, it's been an ongoing uh, project that I started actually last year, but I re-in- I reinvigorated it um, this last year, uh, or sorry, this last month. Uh, essentially, if you want a poem and you have a, a ability to send a text, you can send a text uh, to 442 336 poem that's 442-336-7636 and I will shoot you back a poem um, these poems are oh and I just got one that was I, from me <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if it auto-completed a poem and just sent one to no you. no it does oh. not auto-complete a poem well, can I read I, what it says yeah please it says please. to me and this ties into one of the mediums that we were just talking about please be patient your poem is percolating, <laughs> just like a coffee. So this you, this is literally attached to your phone right now. Yeah, this is. And you this will goes, send a poem back. To yeah, people. this goes straight to my phone. My phone, and um, it it's funny because then it makes a a little sound like passing gas, and that tells me that I need to send a poem back to someone. And then I I uh, sometimes I will sit down and I'll actually write one in that moment. Sometimes I go back to a, a warehouse kind of of poems. I've I've 
written over 300 and something of these at this point. And I write them in a what's called a nonette style. Um, a nonette is a, a French poem, uh, form poem. Um, it's very short. It's nine lines, 45 syllables. You go from um, nine syllables down to one syllable. And I found that it's a really, A, it's a great um, poem that you can crank out real quick, um, kind of just on whatever's around you. It's like, it's, it's a syllable game. It's kind of a riddle. Um, but also it fits nearly perfectly in every text box. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. Wait, so did you just, you didn't just write this poem, you just sent to me no, while we were no, talking, no. did you? I was like, that would have been unbelievable. Yeah, no, I'm not that fast. That was one of my warehoused ones. Uh, uh, will you read it? Uh, yeah, I'll read that one for okay, you. You can Let read me. it on my phone or yours, I, I will guess. read it on my phone. Uh, so this one is called um, Texting. Uh, this text message carries my voice up past your iris on a light wave, translated to impulses, flowing on optic nerves, Translated again into a voice, never mine, but now ours. Uh, that is East Hampton Poet Laureate Jason Montgomery. And if you, I don't want to bombard him. With, no, please do. Okay, you want me to? Okay. <laughs> so if you want a poem from him, it literally goes right to his phone. You text uh, 442-336-POEM. Yep. 442-336-7636. And East Hampton's Poet Laureate Jason Montgomery will text you a poem back. Right, which is like just one of the cool things about making poetry more accessible and bite-sized. In yeah. fact, like one of the other small poem projects you have is the poetry vending machine. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's which so, I like, also adore. <laughs> it is it is super cute. And the poetry vending machine is actually um, Alex Woolner's uh, kind of uh, bread and butter brainchild. Um, and it is the most adorable and amazing um, kind of thing that, that Alex has come up with. Do they come out in like little gotcha, like uh, no, little they Easter eggs? Oh, uh, no, no, we we did look for those. They come out in sticker sleeves. I love those too. Yeah, Alex, um, Alex, kind of one day we were driving somewhere and Alex is like, what do you think if we if we made a poetry vending machine? And I was like, that is wonderful nonsense. How did we do that? <laughs> and uh, they source their machines from a gentleman who uh, is in the Worcester area who used to have sticker machines in, in some diner restaurant across Massachusetts. And the first time that we we went to go get one, I was, Alex is like, come with me. I want to I go pick them up. We go and we, we arrive at the gentleman's house and he's like, follow me to my warehouse. I'm like, well, this is where we get murdered. And so we drive to this warehouse and he's like, I'll be inside. And he goes inside and he comes down and he opens this dark, dank door. And I'm like, are we really going to do this? Like, is this, I'm like, well, okay. I'm like, it's been a fun run. And we go in and he's got hundreds of them, just these oh. sticker machines. So Alex gets them and refer, uh, refurbishes them, rehabs them, um, rebrands them, and then collects poems from individuals all over the world. It's really a fun project. Where can we see them? Like, uh, do they exist in real time anywhere that we can oh, go yeah. get poems? Yes, uh, you can get, so there is one that lives at Amherst Books um, in Amherst. Uh, and it was funny. We we had one of the machines out doing a street fair once, and someone walked up to us and was like, "We petitioned to have that remain in Amherst Books," and like walked <laughs> away. And I was like, "Who did you petition? What is happening?" <laughs> so it lives in Amherst now. Yeah. Um, oh. And then there's another one that will be at um, the uh, city space uh, space through the month of April um, 
with ECA. And then East another, Hampton, yeah. Uh, yeah, East Hampton City Arts. And then another one that will be at 50 Arrow Gallery um, through through the month of April. So and 50 Arrow Gallery is where? Uh, 50 Arrow Gallery is at uh, 116 Pleasant Street, Suite 244. It's on the second floor of the Eastworks building. And also in East Hampton. Yeah. Yes. Um you pointed at me. Do you want to take a break? Yeah. I think we should. Let's yeah. take yeah. a quick break and we'll come and back. And we'll hear a longer poem we'll from Jason Montgomery, poet laureate of East Hampton. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Glee Smith. April is National Poetry Month, and we are speaking with the poet laureate of East Hampton, outgoing poet laureate. Jason Montgomery. We've been talking about his text poem project. Did you get other people texting the poems? I just got six people um, texting, <laughs> which is, it's amazing, Yay. and I love it. Your Thank poetry you. output is going to have to go uh, off the charts here, and I'll just give the phone number out one more time if you want a... No, please do. This a, is amazing. A bespoke poem from East Hampton's Poet Laureate, Jason Montgomery. The number to text the word poem to is 442 336 Seven six three six. Maybe we should offer poems on when we're giving out our text number here, because unless we're talking about whether or not you should call somebody ladies, nobody seems to text our phone. Number. I mean, like, I'm. <laughs> it's been a minute, but I am published. So. <laughs> okay, and I'm terrible. But did you just write this poet poem now, or did I get two because uh, I'm lucky? You may have just gotten two because you're lucky. Oh, good. Um, so. That is another one from, uh, yeah, nope, I did not just write that one now. I know, we only had a one-minute underwriting break there, and if you had, again, whipped up a poem in that amount of time, it would have been incredible. But you you do have another poem that you want to read. I do have another poem, and I'll I'll read it. And then to um, uh, 617, uh, who just texted in, I will have your your poem in just one minute. (laughs) So if you're listening. (laughs) Um, this one is is a sad and silly poem um, called uh, This Most Recent Apocalypse. My auntie is prepping for this most recent apocalypse. Laughish, laughing, she references the current Russian president in the same sentence as Sarah, Burnett, and Cortez. Just another in a long list of apocalypse men. She asks if my brother sent me potassium iodine yet. He has them left over from his thyroid surgery, which he was removed 15 years ago. He told her she will need to take one every day when it all starts. It is just one of the apocalypse instructions she's written on pink cardstock from her scrapbooking supplies in her quick and tight handwriting. They sit by the computer she doesn't really know how to use in her little office. There's also one that says, close Google, open Google Mail, account, better. In her spare room, the one my sons call their bedroom, she has me assemble a wire baker's rack she purchased from Costco. Her supplies are cans of pinto beans, powdered insure, corn, tortillas, and one bottle of Chick-fil-A sauce. Over dinner at La Fonda, when I ask her for her plan once all the food is gone, or if there is no power during the summer when the heat reaches 120 degrees, she simply says, 
with a laugh that I'd know from the other side of the world. I will live or I will die just like those before me. Yay. That's East Hampton's Poet Laureate Jason Montgomery, who has an event coming up um, in regards to National Poetry Month at your 50 Arrow Gallery, Speaking Colors, an exhibition of art and ekphrastic poetry. What is ekphrastic poetry? I it, it is about to be butchered because I always mispronounce this word is what it is. <laughs> okay, no, uh, did I mispronounce I, it? I, I'm assuming you pronounced it correctly. I don't know. We can uh, always ask Emily Brewster We'll ask later. Emily Brewster. <laughs> yeah. um, so ekphrastic poetry is poetry that is um, that uses a image or a piece of artwork, a photograph um, as its prompt. And so what we did was we asked a um, 10 of the artists who have shown with 50 Arrow since we opened um, to give us an image. Like, um, send us something. And then we went out and we curated 10 poets from um, here in Springfield. I believe uh, we have Maria Cruzado, who's the first Springfield Poet Laureate. Um, we have Maya Williams, who is Portland, uh, Maine's Poet Laureate. Uh, we have myself and Alexandra Woolner. It's a Poet Laureate stacked event. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we, poet Laureates aside, there are some amazing writers who are taking part um, who have all been given these images and then produced beautiful, beautiful poems, um, all of which um, we printed on broadsides. Where broadsides are, mm. are usually like a poster with a, an image and then the poem on it. Um, and we'll be displaying them starting tomorrow if I get them hung up in time. And then the <laughs> opening reception is Thursday? Yes. 5 o'clock at 50 Arrow Gallery in East Hampton. Yep. The the opening reception is from 5 to 8 p.m. Um, in uh, Suite 244. Some of the writers will be by. Hopefully some of the artists will show. Um, but it's a great chance to come in and take a look at some amazing new poems and some beautiful, beautiful art. <laughs> I wanted to ask about the connection between your art and your poetry, but I feel like that covered a lot of ground. <laughs> so instead, I want to ask you about the ofrendas. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's it's such a beautiful, like, connective thing. I, you know, we love connections here on the yeah. Fabulous 413. Building community is all about them. But can you speak about, like, the building of and the taking down of your ofrendas every year because I think you do it every year. Yeah, now. we do it every year. We are we are on. Um, and I a, guess explain to other people who don't know what ofrendas oh, are. Uh, so an ofrenda, <laughs> um, literally translated, just it's offering. Um, it's part of the Dia de los Muertos holiday. Um, it is a centralized altar. Some people build them in their homes. Some people build them in in cemeteries to those who have passed. And the the idea is that you come and you leave offerings to loved ones. Um, because in a very real sense, um, at least spiritually, to, to particularly members uh, of different indigenous communities throughout Mexico, the belief is that you, the spirits of your ancestors come and they visit. And this offering is to remind them that they are remembered, to help guide them back to you um, as they come from the underworld. And... Um, to, to really take a moment and, and remember all of the, the love and affection you had for people through, through remembering what foods they loved, what um, drinks they may enjoy. Um, and so we, we do a community ofrenda where we offer um, to everyone. Um, from from wherever come together 
Um, bring photographs of your loved ones. Um, we usually make several offerings uh, in, in the form of, of bread, of candy, of salt, of water. Of um, you know, It's funny because there's always more beer after than, than before. <laughs> it's, it like multiplies. Um, but we do one in Holyoke. Uh, we'll be doing it again at Laurel Park in the Elmwood neighborhood. And not just because now that's my neighborhood, but because <laughs> we really found it's a beautiful place with tons of foot traffic. And then we'll be doing another one in East Hampton. Um, the Holyoke friend is on its fifth slash sixth year. Um, uh, Johan Rashi Vega, who is one of the founders, also had been doing a um, ofrenda uh, in in Holyoke, and then we kind of merged together. So uh, fifth year uh, of our kind of work, and then sixth year altogether, and um, a beautiful way to come together as a community and celebrate. Um, your loved ones, your family, your friends, uh, all of us together. Shout out to Johan, still doing really awesome stuff. I've got one last question for you, yes. real quick. So you're on your way out as as Poet Laureate. Yes. What's a way to sum up your time really quickly there? Like, how has it been? Oh, it's been it's been a lot of, a lot that kind of <laughs> surprised me. Um, you know, I didn't, I, I came into it thinking I, I had a couple projects I was going to do. And then suddenly I was like, no, I'm going to do this project. Then I'm going to do this thing over here. Now this thing over here. But I blame my attention deficit disorder on, on that. So <laughs> it, you could say it's ADD. It's been AD, it's been an ADD two years. Well, you can check out Jason Montgomery and and other poets and artists at Speak in Colors, an exhibition of art and ecrastic poetry on Thursday at the opening reception, uh, reception at 50 Arrow Gallery. And also get a poem texted to you. Text POEM to 442-336-7636. Tomorrow in the fabulous 413, National Book Award winning poet and UMass Amherst professor Martina Spada. He's reading at GCC on Wednesday, and he'll read with us tomorrow. And we'll talk with H. John Fisher, the fair housing manager at Wayfinders in Springfield, who are presenting a national fair housing and civil rights conference this week. Our director is Tony, practicing his dad jokes done. Our engineer is Betsy, has an interesting idea to get carbon neutral, Cordis. Our technical team is Bart, heading a vice grip, Rankin, Kara, pushing carts that make annoying noises like this. No, we don't have the noise. Foster <laughs> and Punk Rock Dubay, who maybe saw Dylan Gaffney doing punk rock in uh, Northampton in, in the 80s. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Suitcase Junket, Drunk Stuntman, Lonesome Brothers, and Chicano Batman. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Police Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.